Whether it's dismantling the fossil fuel industry, creating a solar-powered utopia, or simply desiring to hear more birds in the sky than planes, this is Idealistically, a podcast where we discuss what we would idealistically want in an ideal world. Hello and welcome back. Thank you to everyone who has been listening and sharing the podcast up until this point. It has been a real joy to see people catching up and sharing it on social media and telling me that it sounds like listening to friends because that is all a podcast host could ever dream of, I think. At the time of recording this intro, the UK is experiencing quite a major heat wave. The Met Office announced the first ever extreme heat warning for the UK of all time, which is quite scary, making it feel quite apt that this episode's guest is someone who really knows their climate stuff. I really wanted to make sure that I got a mix of guests on this podcast, people who do all sorts of things, whether they are directly in climate and social justice spaces or whether they are outside of it. And having a climate scientist come on as a guest was essential to me because I really want to know what the people with all the knowledge and all the brains are thinking about the future. This episode is a slightly shorter one, but hopefully that will then give you time to go and have a watch of the videos and content that we discuss in this episode. As always, all of that will be linked in the description. So welcome, welcome to the show. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself in whatever way feels best for you? I like all my guests to introduce themselves because we know, we know ourselves better than anyone else will. So my name's Adam Levy and I'm a climate scientist. So I did a doctorate in atmospheric physics at the University of Oxford. Atmospheric physics is just kind of the physics of the atmosphere. So kind of understanding the sciencey side of, um, of climate change. Um, And then after that doctorate, I became a science journalist uh, working for for nature for a few years and then going freelance a few years ago. And I also started a climate change YouTube channel, which is called Climate Adam. And Climate Adam tries to explain complex, kind of overwhelming topics around climate change in a way that is straightforward and hopefully not overwhelming. Um, so yeah, I kind of realized that I enjoyed talking about the scientific and climate research a lot more than actually doing it myself. One of my favorite videos of yours is the, um, the one where you talk about whether it's too late to stop climate change and the kind of analogy of like us slapping ourselves in the face. Um, I just think it's a brilliant way of, of putting a big complex thing into a very simple term. So that's one good example of, of what you do best. We jump straight in on this podcast. So I know the world is kind of heavy right now. It sometimes feels like it always is. Um, but how do you find, you know, do you find it easy or do you find it difficult to envision an ideal version of the world at the moment, at least? I think I find it quite difficult in general I think maybe as a climate scientist we're often used to um, focusing on the negatives we want to avoid so it ends up being this kind of double negative way of thinking uh, which is very different to actually envisaging a positive future Uh, avoiding a negative future does not feel the same 
And it's something I consciously try and make myself do and try and imagine not just what am I trying to avoid, what are the negative consequences of climate change, but what could we actually build in the process of fighting this immense threat? I think it's interesting because different ways of looking at it drive people differently. Like I know I've gone through periods of time where actually looking at the dark, depressing stuff has been what's driven me because I'm like, oh, we are really like facing some bad, bad stuff. And uh, yeah, that has then driven me to action because I'm like, well, what else do we do? But it can be crippling if you take that too far. Um, so yeah, totally relate. I think there is probably um, this gray area between kind of... Uh, naive optimism and despair where the useful stuff happens you don't want to just think everything's going to be fine because it won't be unless someone does anything about it but also if you just uh think that no action makes any difference then well that is is just the same as denying there's a problem in the first place so i think that gray area of knowing that there's a serious problem but there's something beautiful that be can be created on the other side by acting on it uh, is what I try and strike in my mind. I don't know how successful I actually am though. I know a lot of people who are thinking more like hope is kind of an action. It's not just like a feeling. It's like I feel hope when I'm actually doing something and I, I like that way of looking at it too. So leading on from that, initial, like, initial thought, what comes to your head when you envision your ideal world? And I know you have kind of delved into this within your YouTube channel, um, but yeah, maybe as of late, like what's what's calling to you? I think the first word that I think of when you put this question to me is uh, is value um, and what we end up valuing as a society and rethinking that. Um, because I think often we value things with uh, incredibly harmful impacts as um, in the societies that we've currently built. And rethinking how our societies place value on things and placing value on on creativity, on kindness, on generosity, all of these things which are actually a very deep part of our nature anyway, I think is the fundamental thing I think about when I start to think about a different uh, society that I would find more beautiful. Have you had any like experience of like pockets of that that make you think this this is the energy and that's what I mean by value, like in your life, in recent times. I think uh, a time that comes to mind is actually uh, when you go to a music festival mm. and everyone is just, there's a sense of togetherness, there's a sense of care. Um, you see people just helping people out when they, they want to, people sharing things in a way that they just don't normally. Um, and uh, there's just a sense that you're in this kind of little world uh, where things are how they could be. Obviously, there are lots of things about a music festival <laughs> which you wouldn't necessarily want to extrapolate to the to the entire world. But um, yeah, I think in those little moments, you see that uh, that kind of human interaction shining through. Yeah, I love that. Actually, previously in another episode, um, I mentioned how during a big protest in London one time, I was just amazed by having 
the opportunity to share biscuits with people. Like there was like a lovely sunset happening. I was just in a crowd of people. The atmosphere was great. And there was people handing around biscuits. And I was like, <laughs> this is so beautiful. We're all looking after each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a British symbolism as well. Like yeah, the idea, that's true. Like, the, the most fundamental thing that could be handing around biscuits. Passing around the rich tea. Um, yeah, <laughs> I love that. What would you keep from the current world for your ideal version? I think what I, I find absolutely amazing about the world we've created is how far we've let our curiosity and our ingenuity take us. Um, we ask such incredibly complicated questions, whether that's in... Um, in, in science, in humanities, um, and yeah, it blows my mind to see a little helicopter flying on Mars or vaccines available in less than a year, um, or to hear how, we're a, uh, how, how we've begun to question the very nature of ourselves and what makes us human, intelligent, or even, I guess, a, alive in a meaningful way. So this like curiosity and ingenuity that has uh, I think being a, a part of our society forever from what I know of human history uh, I think is something that we, we see shining today um, and of course that's something that can be manipulated for things that are uh, perhaps of negative value but I think that fundamental kernel I think is a beautiful thing and can create beautiful things. Yeah, I actually find it really interesting that you use like the Mars example because I'm guilty of being like, should we really be putting things on Mars when we haven't dealt with the stuff down here yet? So yeah, I find that interesting. Obviously, like you say, it can be used for, for bad things. We don't necessarily want to go live on Mars, but we need to maybe, you know, collect data, find out what is going on out there. <laughs> so I guess I have very mixed feelings about this kind of research, I find it absolutely uh, fantastic and beautiful. But uh, yeah, if it's being prioritized over making our planet livable, then I feel perhaps less positively about it. I, I would also say there seems to often be, we're quite often happy to fund scientific research with no immediate practical application in mind. But the same isn't often the case for say, the humanities and the social sciences, which often are directly related to our lives and um, are often deeply underfunded. So I, I think there's really a place for, for, funding, um, for funding work that doesn't necessarily have a direct economic impact. But I think we should extend that beyond the physical and natural sciences when we do. How does being a climate scientist and kind of you know really truly understanding the current situation and the reality of like the climate crisis how does it like help your ability to imagine or does it actually make it a lot harder which I guess you have you did briefly touch on but maybe you can delve a little bit further into that yeah I think it can make it very difficult you, you can become very jaded because you become used to looking at graphs where they're just three different lines uh, which plot different possible worlds into the future. And hidden behind those lines is, are um, the safety of millions upon millions of lives, depending on which line we choose. And you see um, you see how challenging the relatively safe uh, 
this being a podcast, you can't see I'm putting heavy quotes <laughs> around the word safe. Uh, the relatively safe path, how incredibly challenging that that is. Um, th- the fact that um, we're following often the most terrifying, the like dark red lines more often than not. Um, so it, when you look at these graphs and you know what lies behind them, it becomes hard to think about um, this beautiful future and hard not to just, I, I suppose, get into this this spiral of thinking about um, what the most catastrophic line could mean. I think recently I was looking at the um, the UK's like climate change committee um, and the fact that they um, have made the government commit to new carbon commitments. It's, I'm bad with stats and it's not on the top of my head. Um, but I, I was like reading through the information and like saw one of those sorts of graphs where it was like, this is what happens if we do everything we absolutely need to as quickly as possible. And I was like, why is that not like the only line on that graph? Like why, <laughs> why can't we just stick to that? Um, so for me, I find that very frustrating. <laughs> and I suppose that's, uh, that is the case we're at as an international community because every country in the world is signed up to the Paris Climate Agreement, which says we're going to limit global warming under two degrees Celsius, ideally under 1.5 degrees Celsius. And those are those relatively open quotes, safe, close quotes, levels. Um, And yet the international community is still kind of acting like that's not what they've agreed to do. And so there's this huge cognitive dissonance between what the world has said is safe and that we're definitely going to achieve and then the actions we're taking to achieve that. Do you think there's any part of it that can help you with envisioning a better world? Or do you think it is just really tricky when you know all of that stuff? I think as someone interested in climate change, you look often at this big global picture and you look at those three lines that I I mentioned. Um, But you also end up hearing about things on very local um, close levels whether that's um communities rethinking um how they will take care of themselves or um perhaps uh indigenous communities who have had a different model for caring for themselves for a very long time and i think through the lens of looking at how we interact with the environment i've heard about ways of living our lives that are very different to to what I grew up with and I imagined uh, growing up with in London. Um, and so I think uh, these kinds of stories do give me a lot of hope um, and do create an image for the future that I think if we could extrapolate them outwards would um, would be a really wonderful thing. Experiencing like or just learning about different cultures and ways of doing things does help expand the view of the world, definitely. Is there one piece of science or one prediction that makes it particularly difficult? Like, is there anything that really stays in your mind specifically? It's like, oh God. Yeah, I think there's one number in particular that just as soon as I first learned about it, I've never been able to get out of my head. And it's a very simple number. It's the number zero. Uh, and that's what we need to get emissions to to stop the world heating up. Um, and before I started my PhD and I didn't know so much about climate change, I didn't know this. I didn't know this fact. And I think it wasn't a, a part of the wider climate change conversation for a long time. 
But that just changes things so much. We're not talking about, oh, making things more efficient or like a transition towards greener energy. We're talking about completely shifting where everything comes from, because at the moment, everything comes from something that creates emissions. Uh, so that number zero, this fact that we have to completely uh, turn the ship around of how of how our societies are powered. Yeah, I find that incredibly intimidating. Yeah, gosh. Zero. A, a, a nothing number, but also an everything number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so much hidden in that nothing number. What climate solutions or innovations do you think that are out there that are kind of promoted as ways that can get us to a better world, but actually probably not all they are hyped up to be well i'll give you one which i have a really love hate relationship with because it's one it's one of the things that got me into science because i thought it was so cool when i was a teenager which is nuclear fusion um so for context nuclear power plants around the world use fission they break up heavy atoms at uh, the sun uh uses nuclear fusion it's kind of glues together very light atoms so what if we could get that to work on earth the, the fuel for it would just come from water, which obviously is pretty abundant on this planet. Um, and we'd have, uh, I guess, virtually limitless, very clean energy. Um, so I grew up just thinking this sounded amazing, too good to be true. And unfortunately, now I really think it is too good to be true, partly just because it's technologically very difficult. Um, and even if we get it to work, that probably wouldn't be for a couple of decades, at which point we need to have been already decarbonizing our economies at a huge scale. But apart from that, it's really complicated and so it'd be really expensive. And we're, when we're talking about getting to zero, we're talking about everywhere in the world getting to zero. I think something like nuclear fusion, which is so high tech, so complex, so expensive, is not going to be this... Uh, silver bullet that um i think when i was young i i dreamed that maybe it would be and i think sometimes we still still discuss it as if oh if we can just get this to work it would be uh problem solved so aside from nuclear fusion what is one thing that absolutely does give you hope or like what trend within the climate space is uh is working for you <laughs> i mean it sounds mundane and so obvious but um actually it, it comes down to to renewables to solar and wind so when i started working on climate change which is almost a decade ago um the narrative was oh yeah you know renewables are clearly a huge part of the solution but they require such big subsidies and how are we going to convince governments around the world to implement that especially in poorer countries and then that story has just been turned on its head in the last years to the point where solar and wind are now, for, for many parts of the world, for most parts of the world, the cheapest source of energy. Um, so building solar and wind makes more economic sense um, than building, for example, a coal power plant. Um, now, that's not enough to solve the whole climate change problem, but it is just a huge turnaround for, for from some years ago. And, uh, yeah, it really does give me hope that... Um, that we're able to to take the steps we needed to start drastically cutting emissions. Mm. I'm curious, do you think that the sort of renewable transition, whatever you want to call it, should be in the hands of fossil fuel companies or if it should be in the hands of like newer energy companies that like solely focus on that? Um, 
I don't really... <laughs> Let me think about this. I mean, from one perspective, it doesn't matter. What matters is that it actually happens um, and that we do transition away from fossil fuels. I guess the follow-up question is, okay, in that case, who do we actually trust to make that happen? Um, and fossil fuel companies have a track record of delaying action um, and uh, actively seeding doubt around this issue. Um, and so it becomes difficult to imagine them taking the, the urgent steps that are needed uh, with the sincerity that is needed. So if if we could trust the fossil fuel companies to do it, or there's some kind of regulation in place to really make sure that happened, I guess, sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> but those, <laughs> those are two like huge ifs, and I think there's some very good reasons to say the answers to those ifs might be like, nah. Yeah, I'm just going to say it here. I think my ideal version of the world is one where BP and Shell and all the terrible names do not exist. At the same time, I think those companies are going to not go down without a huge fight. Um, and so if we could create a pathway for them to re-transform uh, themselves into something that is helpful rather than harmful, then great. Um, because uh, yeah, I don't think getting getting rid of them would come without without consequences either. I, I would also say if I've learned one thing about solutions to climate change, it's that there's no one solution to climate change. And anyone who tells you there is might be trying to sell you something. Um, you know, getting to that zero is a huge complex task. There's not going to be one single thing that fixes it for us. Maybe nuclear fusion will play like a really cool, awesome role in it, but it's not going to do it by itself, even in, you know, our wildest dreams. I know on... Um your youtube channel recently you did this great video where you spoke to people on omegle which for people who don't know is like a platform where you basically can just talk to strangers uh like randomly um slightly sketchy from what i've heard but <laughs> i thought that was really interesting because it kind of showed that so many people are thinking about these issues and they are thinking about climate change even though there's a lot being thrown at us through like the media and stuff to make us feel differently um, and I was wondering if like there's anything you've learned from having not necessarily just on Omegle, but in general, um, as someone who is very knowledgeable on this stuff, like if there's anything you've learned from those sorts of conversations that have made you, I guess, like made you see it through the lens of more people, if that makes sense. Like, was that a question? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can answer whether it was a question or not. Um, so I think uh there are two things which come up again and again, and they're slightly opposite ends of the spectrum, but they lead to the same conclusion. The first is, how will this affect me? Um, this sense that climate change is something far away, far into the future, or that happens to other people in other parts of the world. Um, and the other is that it's already too late and that the world is doomed um so that question is often framed to me like how long does that earth have as if there's a time limit after which you know everything blows up um and both of these kind of i suppose miss the point which is that climate change isn't some 
sudden event that happens in some specific location. It's something that happens gradually everywhere and gets worse and worse everywhere. Um, and um, I don't resent either of these questions. I think they're very understandable because often the way we talk about climate change is as this very abstract thing. Maybe we show people this graph with these three lines and then expect people to have some intuition what the difference between the RCP 8.5 scenario is and the RCP, you know, like, of course, no one has an intuition for that. Um, and so I really think it's the job of um, people who care about climate change, which hopefully is all of us, um, to, to talk about it better, to talk about it in a way that helps people localize it and also helps people see that it's, um, that it's a gradient. It's not some sharp line between... Uh, you know, completely fine and catastrophic. Uh, and every action we can do to stop ourselves going further down that gradient is an action to be celebrated. Going back to solutions, and on a lighter note, not that this has not been light, this has been quite an, an upbeat conversation about climate change, <laughs> which is what I enjoy about your work is that you do make it upbeat. What would you invent? And this can be anything serious. It can be silly. It can be meaningful. Anything. You've got one opportunity to invent something. <laughs> what would it be? Well, I think uh, one of the biggest problems we have is that our actions are often so disconnected from their impacts. So often, you know, when we buy something from the shop or we get in our car or in a plane, the effect that that has is far, it, it is far away or it's spread out. And we don't, it, it's very easy for us to, to ignore, to um, put blinkers on and um, pretend it doesn't exist. So with that in mind, I think if everyone had to somehow carry around or physically deal with their carbon dioxide emissions, Ooh. I think that would be, I mean, it would be a Herculean task. <laughs> You'd be able to spot all the rich people walking around because theirs would just be way higher. So that exactly, would be... Yeah. It would be a way of simultaneously really, I guess it would be a bit of a punishment, but also this oh, kind God. of shaming thing. Although I do worry that then it would become some status symbol as well. Oh, yeah. oh no. Oh, look how many tower blocks of carbon dioxide I have. So oh, I, I don't know. I've not, I've not thought this carefully through. If anyone's about to implement this amazing <laughs> idea, I think we need to brainstorm it a bit, a bit further before we yeah. go with it. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll make note to uh, think this through a bit better. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> What, what would it be like a color scale? Would it be like a number? Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess you could just wear a badge. I was thinking of literally somehow having to drag it around, which oh, wow. is a bit of a ridiculous idea because I think the average emissions per person on the planet is, you know, of the order like a couple of tons of CO2 each year. Mm. So, yeah, it's probably, it's it probably would get needs to work. get pretty heavy just quite quick. Just the energy you're using to carry your carbon dioxide around would create quite a lot more emissions. So maybe not the most. All right. Okay, look, it, it needs some work, but I think it might be the start of something. What's one thing that listeners could do to kind of help make your ideal world a reality? And um, I've been kind of 
adding a sort of asterisk onto this question by saying, you know, I don't want it to be get through like an individual lens of like your dream world is like the one we should all follow because obviously it's it's different for everyone. Whether it's one thing, two things, what are some things that we can be doing to kind of put put some action in place? I think just really thinking in your life about what you value um, on a really fundamental level and trying to trying to critique that in yourself and trying to think about how the actions you take in your day-to-day life maybe um, conflict with what you value um, and trying to act on that and extending that value beyond your immediate surroundings and thinking about, um, you know, how your actions create meaningful, beautiful things around the world. Um, That's a very amorphous piece of advice. It's not not an easy thing. No, I I love it. Because um, I originally was into fashion, like I grew up wanting to be a fashion designer. And so a lot of my knowledge to do with sustainability is within like fast fashion and how terrible that industry is. Um, But one thing that I always go back to, it's like really vague, but it's like the idea of like mindset. And like, actually, if we start looking at the values within our lives and we start saying like, actually, I don't want like, for example, I know like my memories growing up, a lot of them were like based around like shopping and like going shopping with my sister and like getting nice clothes. And it's like how that's really like weird looking back to think that those memories, those formative memories, like based around like consumption and stuff. So I actually really like those sorts of like vague, like deep uh, ideas and action points because like I think it gets us to look really deeper within ourselves. And like you say, we can then apply that to how we actually live out our lives. Mm. And I think often when we do value consumption, uh, there's often something deeper behind it. You know, you probably had a great time hanging out with your sister or we really like, uh, you know, feeling like we look beautiful in whatever we're wearing or however we appear. And there are different ways, you know, you don't have to completely rewire that. We can still, um, we can still have beautiful fashion, but in a way that is kind and caring, we can still have a nice time with our sister without buying (laughs) stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much to Adam for joining me. As I mentioned, their content and their YouTube channel is really accessible and engaging. So do go check out their content and make sure to give it a share. I think it's a great way to engage people who are maybe more new to the climate conversation. So definitely recommend doing that. And of course, you can always follow and share the podcast too. Sharing it means more people listen. More people listening means we get more visions and ideas for the future. So it is at idealisticallypod on Instagram and at idealisticallyp on Twitter. And you can, of course, follow me as well on Twitter and Instagram at at Tolmeyer, which is spelled T-O-L-M-E-I-A. Sound and editing by myself and music by Stowe Gregory. Thank you.